0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today I am in dialogue with Dr. Tomas Yardim. He is Associate Professor of History at Toronto Metropolitan University. We will be discussing his newly published book, Ilse Koch on Trial, Making the Bitch of Buchenwald published in Cambridge by Harvard University Press, 2023. Thomas, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Well, likewise, it's great to be here. I'm really appreciative that you reached out. Can you kindly
0: tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today?
1: Um, what formative events inspired me to be a scholar? I'm not quite sure of that. I can say that you know I was exposed to a lot when I was a kid. My dad worked for the Portuguese government, and so we lived in a lot of places. I was born in England. My brother was born in Copenhagen. We wound up in Canada. Um, but my father was a big lover of history, and I always um, was fascinated by the stuff that we would talk about together. But I would say with regards to really coming to the scholarship That has become my own. To me, the two things that really stick out that I think of is first uh, reading Elie Wiesel's book *Night* in high school, which is just part of the regular curriculum. I have no, you know, personal connection to this history, and *Night* just really, um, I found it so compelling. And I think I've always been one of those people who, rather than you know, gaining wide knowledge about a lot of little things, it's like I, I, I find one thing fascinating. And I can't look away until I feel like I have completely untangled every bit of it and and understood it as best I could. So I think I I gained a real interest in understanding the dynamics of the Holocaust and the Nazi period in part through that. And then in part through uh, my best friend in high school, whose father was a survivor, a survivor who's in fact, still alive now a very old man. And he was a wonderful guy, still is a wonderful guy. And he very kindly used to sit and talk to me about um some of some of this history and the questions that i had and would tell me about his own personal story and it really just um this kindled this kind of burning need in me to really unpack these these events of the 20th century to understand their their human dynamics and i think that really set me on this path Uh, And toward this field that I now work in, which revolves around, of course, the Holocaust, the Nazi period, questions about guilt and innocence and human behavior and, uh, and that sort of thing.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: Uh, this book itself sort of grew out of my last book. My my preceding book was a book about uh, the trial of personnel from Mauthausen concentration camp by the American Army that took place at Dachau uh, after the war. And uh, while I was doing all of that research in the National Archives and digging through all the American legal records, I kept on coming up uh, against this Ilse Koch case, and it clearly was you know, the most important and the most vexing case that the U.S. Army uh, dealt with in its war crimes program in Germany. And I was really fascinated by it. And every time I'd come across across a clump of documents, I couldn't help sort of reading and looking and and checking it out and making a mental note that, wow, this sure would make a good project. Because um, it, become, it, it became immediately clear, firstly, that the person that Ilse Koch uh is in the public mind really stands in contrast to who she was as a historic figure that there was so much kind of misattribution uh, to her um and so i think that was kind of fascinating and then there's the whole sort of cultural and political reaction to her trials which seems so counterintuitive it's like if you're reading about um the trials of war criminals in germany in particular it's like Once the trial of the major war criminals is complete before the International Military Tribunal at at, uh, Nuremberg, the further we get from that single trial, the continued trials of perpetrators in Germany are immensely unpopular with the German public. There's a tendency to believe that the, you know, the real guilty ones have been dealt with, the rest are following orders, you know, we need to let bygones be bygones, and... And yet, at the very same time that we have these powerful lobbies in Germany trying to overturn and free uh, uh, convicted war criminals, at the very same time, you have this real drive in Germany to make sure that the day that Ilse Koch is freed from American custody, she will be held by Germany, she will be put on trial, she will get the harshest uh, you know sentence that the law allows. And that, to me, I, I couldn't understand. It's like, how do you square these, these two things, this dramatic kind of... Um, push against the war crimes trial program in Germany and the widespread belief that those who were incarcerated for Nazi crimes were there unjustly, how does that jibe with at the same time this real desire, both in the United States but and in Germany, to see her sort of um, punished in a way that, that virtually nobody else was? Uh, I mean, in the end, Ilse Koch, somebody who had no official position in the Nazi state whatsoever, wound up spending more time in prison than almost any other Nazi perpetrator except for Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy. So it's like, how do we explain this? She's a nobody. And the the, the most sensational charges against her uh, fail in court. And yet we wind up with this huge um, sort of Groundswell of of support for her uh, prosecution and uh, incarceration, and uh, and ultimately this sentence that 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 is longer than 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 almost any other sentence handed down, and in fact not just handed down but fulfilled by other uh, Nazi perpetrators. So there was just big questions. I didn't. I, I really. It's like this doesn't make sense. I need to pursue this and sort this out and untangle this to account for this phenomenon. What are the primary themes
0: in your book? What story does your book tell?
1: Well, the book itself, in terms of a narrative structure, surrounds Koch's three trials. She was tried, um, believe it or not, first in Nazi Germany by an SS special court in 1944, alongside her husband on charges of uh, graft and corruption. Uh, then she was tried by the U.S. military in 1947 for uh, war crimes as part of the Buchenwald complex. And then she was tried by the West German judiciary uh, in 19. 19- uh, 51 for similar crimes. So the s- sort of narrative arc of the book follows those trials, how they play out, her release, her rearrest, the controversies that uh, that that follow her case from beginning to end, the intervention of uh, President Truman, the Senate hearings that uh, emerge. So the, the book is structured around all of those uh, uh, legal developments. The themes that I get at um, really have to do with, um, you know, well, of course, uh, concepts of guilt and innocence, personal responsibility, institutional responsibility in the Nazi uh, period, um, understanding the differences between criminal culpability and moral culpability. Um, certainly the one critical theme in the book is the way that um Cost crimes are gendered and sexualized and that the courts view her crimes because she was one of the few female defendants through a very gendered and sexualized lens. And this fundamentally sort of transforms her case and helps to account for its um, dramatic uh, uh, outcome and the dramatic interest that it generates in the public mind.
0: What kinds of atrocities and cruelties did Ilse Koch do to her victims?
1: Well, this is, of course, the the million-dollar question. Um, I should say first that the reason that many people know who Ilse Koch is is because she was alleged to have um, selected in some fashion tattooed inmates from Buchenwald so that their human skins could be gathered from their corpses in order to make things like lampshades and gloves etc so that is the crime for which she is best known now in the course of my book i really debunk that charge entirely as do all of the, the 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 um courts that look at it she this is the charge that makes her famous but that uh, time and time again when that charge is tested in court it's, it becomes abundantly clear that there's nothing but the uh thinnest hearsay evidence to to um connect her to this crime now that doesn't mean by any means that she is some uh innocent angel and instead you know she was the wife of the commandant of uh Uh, Buchenwald, previously Sachsenhausen, after that for a little while Majdanek, and she is a deeply morally complicit uh, woman who raised her children in the shadows of the camp's barbed wire, who employed slave labor in her household, and was ultimately convicted at her last trial of inciting Others to violence and even to killing through making notes about um, prisoners who who were perhaps not uh, working hard enough, and you know walking over to an SS man and saying, "Look, I'm looking at number 33 over there, and he's not doing his job properly," and uh, and the beatings that those SS men then um, uh, carried out could easily have had uh, fatal or at least brutal consequences. So so I think when we talk in actual fact and what the evidentiary record shows is that she instigated others to violence while she was there as the wife of the commandant without any official rank or position in the state. She, in fact, gave birth three times in the short periods that they were at Buchenwald. So most of the time, in fact, she was rearing her children.
0: What is your book's contribution to perpetrator studies?
1: Um, I would say that my my book's most important uh, contribution to perpetrator studies is a fairly simple one, uh, and that is that um, thus far, uh, and unless I'm wrong, and I've asked various people if they could think of, of, of a, a counterexample, and, and they, they couldn't, thus far, it's the only full-length monograph study of a female perpetrator. We have um, certainly other books that write, you know write on the phenomena of female perpetrators. Excellent books like Wendy Lauer's, you know, Hitler's Furies, but I think my book is the first to provide like a a complete profile. Uh, of a single female perpetrator that allows one to really get an in-depth understanding of who this woman was, uh, what made her tick, how she gets uh, engaged in the atrocities that she is engaged in, and what uh, happens to her in court, how she how she tries to justify uh, her behaviors or deny her behaviors, and what her ultimate end is. So, I don't think there's really been another study yet of a single female perpetrator uh, of such. Um, depth and length, really.
0: Can you describe Ilse Koch's moral character and psychological profile? What would her closest friends say about her? What would her shrink say about her?
1: <laughs> um, it, that's a that's an interesting and tricky question. Um, she's one of these, I think, contradictory, or we would see as contradictory Nazi characters who are, on one hand... You know hold horrifying attitudes that they absolutely defend she was a she was an early um member of the Nazi Party. she clearly supported what it was that her husband was doing in the concentration camps and yet at the same time she she appears to have been a relatively decent uh mother to her children uh she raised children as I said right sort of in the shadows of the camp's barbed wire if you can look through the photo albums of the family and you at least get the uh, the, the sense that they had some nice family time and, and her daughter Gisela uh, certainly um, remembered their childhood at Buchenwald that way. Now, on the other hand, what would her close friends say about her? Well, she appeared to have had very few close friends. Uh, she had a sister-in-law from her husband named Erna Reibler who Initially, she said she used to visit Ilza, and she was quite disturbed in the end by Ilza's behavior. She recall- recalled seeing her being quite uh, brutal to the uh, servants in the house, uh, at one point sort of allowing the dog to gnash at one of these prisoners' Um and later, in fact, though they had been friends earlier on, testified against Ilsa. So I don't think Ilsa got a lot of loyalty from her uh, friends. With regards to what would her shrink say about her, um, I can tell you exactly what her uh, state-assigned shrink said about her because she was subjected to a series of psychiatric assessments uh, ordered by the courts. And these assessments are a little they're they're highly flawed, I would say, because they rather than uh, you know, interview Koch's victims, for instance, they simply go on the trial record. this the, the sort of hearsay accounts of acts of violence attributed to Koch, which I think are 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 thin at best. And on the basis of those alleged behaviors, they they create a profile of Ilza Koch. The, the the thing that they insist on, her her um her doctors, in the psychiatric uh, uh, assessment team is that she bore what they called a level of cruelty, alien to female nature. So you can see that even their perspective here was deeply um, uh, informed by sexist uh, ideas about femininity and, and what the role of, 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 of women would be. Um, but yeah, Ilza Koch, it, it's, it's, it's hard to put one's finger on her on her psychological character she is um uncontrite i would say of of the various traits that one can attribute to her she is seriously uncontrite uh right to the very end and even when strategically Uh, She could get so much more out of just giving a little bit when she's applying for release, applying for clemency. She absolutely refuses to concede in in any fashion, really, that she did anything wrong. And she holds on to that to the very, very uh, end. And psychologically, finally, towards the end, she's just a seriously disturbed woman. Uh, she eventually begins to experience what's referred to as sy- uh, uh, confinement psychosis, and has visions about um, who she describes as vengeful Jews that the government is allegedly allowing into her cell in order to torment her and rape her at night. I mean, it's just awful. She she goes through these, you know, she's living in a in a in a total uh, nightmarish dream world towards the end of her life. So her psychological uh, makeup in general is is a troubled one, by the end at least. What does Ilse Koch's
0: lack of contrition say about her?
1: Uh, Well, again, I think it speaks to the fact that she had many chances to be repentant, many chances to try and distance herself from the crimes committed at Buchenwald. And she really is not interested. She is so convinced that what went on behind the fences of the camp had absolutely nothing to do with her, that the fact that she, you know, used slave labor, witnessed abuse, and in fact, uh, killing from time to time, uh, you know, she had no responsibility for. uh, I think this total lack of contrition and you know, no ability whatsoever to see herself reflected in responsibility for 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 what was occurring at Buchenwald in these places where her husband governed. I think is I don't know. I mean it, it's a bit uh, I think she lacks a certain you know ability to to be contrite you know and i think that she really sabotaged her and herself in the end i mean at her american trial for instance it becomes ludicrous it's like there's things that she could have confessed to that would have helped her case because they would have made her believable while nonetheless not implicating her in a crime like at one point the the chief prosecutor william denson says, well, how did you walk back and forth from your villa about a kilometer from the main gate of the camp to your husband's office right at the main gate of the camp? And she shows with a stick on a map how she would walk there. And the prosecutor says, but that's exactly by like right beside the barbed wire of the main camp enclosure, you know, inside the confines of which people were, you know, starving and dying. And she said, I don't know. I never looked. And he said, You mean to say that you looked you walked that route month in and month out, and you never looked through those fences? And she said, Nope, just had no interest, never looked. And it's and and it's just so absurd. This the, she she just continues to claim that absolutely she saw no evil, she heard no evil. And I think she really undermines her credibility because I think she she just makes her her claims of innocence uh ridiculous because they're so total.
0: What kind of mother and wife was Ilse Koch? Can you describe her as a parent and as a spouse?
1: Um, I mean, I've touched on this a little bit already. I would say that she, um, she did give birth three times uh, during their stint at Buchenwald in 1937, 1938, 1939. And uh, if you look, at, and of course, a photo album is something which is curated by a family to to represent you know, the most idyllic angles of their life. But if you look at the Koch family photo albums, and they're sitting in the National Archives in in Washington, DC, you you see these sort of idyllic scenes of Ilza out on the front lawn, sunbathing with her children, playing with her children in this little wading pool. And that does kind of jibe with her daughter's recollection of their time there when they were young, that they would play in this little wading pool, she would play with her brother, the mother was quite attentive. But there are some things on the other hand that suggest that not all was well her third child Gudrun, who was born in 1939 i believe died of pneumonia when she was only about six months old when ilza was away on a ski trip and there were some people at the time who raised their eyes and said this is this seems like neglect that this is this is not um this is not what a caring mother does Um, And in terms of her role as a wife, I mean, it does seem that there was extramarital stuff going on, but Carl, her husband, was clearly uh, engaged in similar extramarital activities, but nobody seems to hold that against him. But when it comes to Ilse's prosecution as a woman, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus placed on her failings as a wife and mother as they saw it, according to the sort of gendered um, norms. Of the day, so yeah, I think I don't want to place too much emphasis on her uh, extramarital affairs and things like this because I think that they were used and weaponized to shore up criminal charges, which which is which is of course uh, wholly inappropriate. You know, how have scholarly
0: and academic perceptions and evaluations of Ilse Koch? changed and evolved over time.
1: Well, I mean, again, part of the reason that I set out to write this book is just because of how so calmly and dramatically wrong the picture of Koch has been traditionally and over time. I mean, this idea of Koch, the woman who, you know, murdered inmates in order to make lampshades from human skins, was an immensely, you know, popular depiction that you could read in, you know, not just, you know, trashy sensational newspapers in the 1940s, but in fact in real history books. You know, there's a lot of misinformation about who she is and what she did. And so uh, I think that there has been some decent scholarly work in the last 20 years, but very little. There was a really good article by a woman named Alexander Prejremble who looks at the phenomenon of Ilse Koch and and does sort of untangle some of these questions. She's just published uh, a in German that came out about a week after mine. And I'm sure that's of high quality and, and will also point those things out. But really, previously, I've read a, you know, and I'll let them be nameless, because they're written by scholars that I like sometimes, but but, you know, books written by reputable historians who if they refer to her still associate her uh, with the lampshades with the human skins, uh, charges that were wholly rejected and debunked in the trials that she was uh, subjected to.
0: Your book draws upon interviews with Ilsa and Carl's daughter, Gisela, who you yourself interviewed. Can you say something about the relationship between Ilsa and Carl and their daughter and what you learned about that relationship? Mm -hmm. And also, what was it like meeting her daughter?
1: Yeah, working with Gisela I think was one of the probably the most interesting components of my research here. She had, you know, was living under a different name which made tracking her down difficult. I managed to figure it out by a sort of stroke of chance when I was looking in her mother's prison records in in Munich. And there was a name scribbled there. And I sort of thought, oh, that must be Gisela <laughs> uh, with an address. And I didn't know if she was still alive. And I had to do some research and 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 wound up coming up with a single address in a town that I thought more or less made sense. And I wrote her a letter really not expecting to hear back. And in fact, you know, my my reading German is not bad, but my written German is no good. So I had a friend help me write it. And she, being a German, she said, you know, she's not going to write you back. <laughs> and I said, well, let's try but she did write me back, and in a nutshell, the relationship we developed was was a very interesting one. She she was in her late 70s, early 80s through the course of most of our conversation. She was born at Buchenwald in 1938. 30. 37, 38, and grew up in the SS settlement there. Of course, she has very few memories of that, but she does remember visiting her mother in prison very much. Uh, And she had a really, really difficult life as a result of her parents. In some ways, she's also a victim of her parents uh, in that they were arrested, uh, they were imprisoned, her father was executed, and she was shunted from foster home to foster home. But she wound up, you know, living a, an okay life in the end. But she really had a difficult time facing this story. And so, when she did get in, back in touch with me, she sort of made it clear to me, at least reading between the lines, that as she was coming toward the end of the light, her life, she wanted to work through some of this stuff. And for whatever reason, she thought that I would be a sympath- sympathetic sort of interlocutor on this. And so, this is what we did. So I was able to get a lot of good research information just from. Asking her questions about what she remembered about her uh, mother's state of mind in prison. She gave me a lot of personal letters from her mother that were written to her. She even gave me her father, Karl Koch's diary that she had had this whole time and nobody knew existed. And she said, you take it, you know, um, uh, use it for your research, which I did. but I, I, I ultimately, we we developed this really interesting relationship where I could tell sometimes she would ask me about something, and and her knee jerk reaction would be, oh, like I, I'm not sure if I believe that. My mother was a good woman. She would sort of get defensive, and then over time, what happened is that we we came up with this agreement where I said, look, I'm a historian. I'm going to answer the questions that you ask in an accurate fashion according to what I. No. So I said, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I also don't want to shove stuff down your throat that you're not really ready to hear about. So she said, okay, agreed. So she would you know, go away. And then she would think very carefully about the questions that she would want to ask me. And she'd write them down, she'd send me these questions, and then I would answer them as best I could. And then she'd think about them a lot, write me back again about her thoughts and ask me more. And I came to really admire her. I think towards the end of her life, she really decided that she was going to work through this very difficult story and and the very difficult, you know, position in the world that she had of being the daughter of such notorious war criminals. You know and I really regret the fact that she died about six months before my book came out so she was never able to read it which was which was a shame
0: yeah can you describe the SS trial of Carl and Ilsa Koch
1: uh sure um I think one of the elements or the angles of this story that I tell in this book that catches a lot of people by surprise is the fact that the SS themselves were actually interested in clamping down on the behavior of other SS men in the concentration camps. And so in a nutshell, what happened was that Karl as commandant of Buchenwald was immensely corrupt. He was siphoning off the resources that were coming in with prisoners, uh, into the camp that were being confiscated instead of sending them on to berlin he was siphoning them off into his own coffers he was collecting the dental gold from corpses in the crematoria he was even siphoning off money that was coming into the camp for the upkeep of the prisoners and even the the uh, upkeep of the ss and he was living large you can see pictures of Ilza walking in fur coats through the snow in buchenwald and this began to raise eyebrows uh, in the SS, or at least among uh, uh, some some activist SS members who who fashioned themselves as sort of um, anti-corruption crusaders, and the key figure here is a, an SS judge named Conrad Morgan, and Conrad Morgan was a young ideological judge. And by this, by ideological, I mean deeply committed to the SS. He had been working in Krakow trying to root out corruption uh, from the SS occupation uh, forces in Poland. And he wound up coming to Buchenwald to investigate what Karl was doing there. Now, it's interesting that after the war, Conrad Morgan was able to Fashion an image of himself as essentially this anti-Holocaust crusader who had used his investigative powers to throw a monkey wrench wherever he could into the machinery of destruction and to present himself essentially as a hero. When you explore the cases, like the case of the Kochs that he investigated and prosecuted, you realize that this is very much not the case, that in fact, he is one of these people who believes deeply in the cause of the SS and what he cannot stand are people who are sullying its good image by being corrupt by not acting in the best interest of the state and so he launches this very aggressive investigation of Karl Koch's command- commandantship at Buchenwald and actually has him arrested alongside Ilsa who was arrested for receiving of stolen goods and put on trial and 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 strange uh m- most strange of all perhaps is that Conrad Morgan an SS judge also charges Carl with the unlawful murder of concentration camp inmates, uh, ostensibly because Carl was working in cahoots with some inmates on the black market. And when investigators showed up and wanted to talk to those inmates, they had suddenly mysteriously been murdered. So in this sense, the murders he was accused of were, were sort of in, in the service of the destruction of evidence but anyway they were in fact put on trial carl and ilza spent about 16 months in the uh, gestapo prison in weimar quite a fall from grace and uh and, and wound up put on trial. They ruled that there was not enough evidence to convict Ilza, and she was released just before the end of the war, but Carl was not. And Carl was actually sentenced to death and taken back, in fact, to the very camp that he had ruled to Buchenwald, where he was shot and his body disposed of. So the SS trial was no um no bit of window dressing. They they were uh, quite determined to root out this this uh corruption in there in their midst, in the interest of a more sort of noble, put that in giant quotation marks, noble SS.
0: Can you comment on the circumstances surrounding Ilse Koch's suicide?
1: Yeah, sure. So following Ilse Koch's third trial, which ended in 1951, she was again sentenced to life in prison, uh, this time for uh, instigating others to commit acts of violence or murder. And her mental health was seriously compromised, and over the years, she launched various and ever more desperate petitions for release and for clemency. And as I said, she was absolutely incapable of expressing contrition. And so as you can imagine, these petitions for clemency really went nowhere because she refused to acknowledge any guilt or any wrongdoing And so her life in prison was, was, I mean, it was, it was awful. You know, she, she began to really lose her marbles. She was uh, having visions. She was paranoid. And all the while her official attempts to earn release were turned down left, right, and center. And I think by the end of the 1960s or toward the end of the 1960s, she really became quite convinced. And I think not uh, without some cause that really, there was no intention to release her. That it that her release just wasn't possible. And in fact, you can read this in the sort of internal memos of the Ministry of Justice in Bavaria that has to rule on her petitions. There's people who are commenting on these petitions that she files, saying, you know, it's true. She has now served longer sentences than people, uh, you know, than people who did horrifying things that we, you know, let out a decade ago. And there's just a Recognition and you can see this written on the documents that basically the public will not understand the release of so notorious of a woman and so we simply can't release her. One of the the, the um the ministers of justice signs off by saying something like uh there is no um public Uh, Ilza Koch case. There's only a political case. That's the nature of this, you know, and just recognizing that her case is political and she can't be released. It's just that simple. And I think Ilza gets wind of that. And when her last petition is again uh, rejected, I think she just thinks that there's no hope that she's never going to walk out of there. And so one night she simply ties her bed bed sheet into a noose and ties it to her heating pipes and leaves a very brief note for her son, Uwe, that simply says, there is no other way. Death is a release. And she she hangs herself after spending about 24 years in prison.
0: You write as follows on pages 260 and 261 when you describe the Augsburg trial of 1951. You write as follows. Koch viewed the trial as little more than a conspiratorial revenge exercise by a cabal of former inmates in collusion with state authorities. It is unlikely she expected a sentence any less severe, yet in the coming months and years, her hostility, defiance, and refusal to acknowledge any criminal or moral guilt whatsoever would not serve her well, as she filed again and again for clemency, those charged with reviewing her applications consistently invoked her lack of contrition as grounds to declare her release wholly inappropriate. The long and solitary years that followed led Koch not to self-reflection and moral reckoning, but to deeper resentments, and as prospects of her eventual release dimmed, to an untethered descent into madness and finally death. Can you elaborate on this passage for us?
1: Sure. I mean, this is again about her, th- these final years in prison, again, leading to her su- suicide and ties in with the earlier question about her complete lack of contrition. It's interesting because during her trial at Augsburg, she had a uh, a very capable attorney named Alfred Zeidel but a very dubious attorney at the same time he had um defended some of the real bigwigs at Nuremberg and he had you know very dubious politics but i think he he would coach her through these various petitions for release that she wrote over the course of the nineteen fifties and sixties, and I think they really jived well together. That their two outlooks, because he felt there's nothing to you know uh, apologize here for. We are basically political prisoners as prisoners of the war, and you know, and he really coached. Ilse to, 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 to concede nothing, to say that, that this is outrageous, that I did nothing wrong, that everybody else has been released. And it really did not serve her well. And on the basis of Zeitel's applications... Uh, of course, they were rejected time and time and time again because it, they, they they didn't. It's not only that they didn't um, contain contrition. I mean, they really went in the opposite direction. They sort of relitigated her case in a sense by by insisting on the justice of everything that she had done. And what's interesting is that at the very end of her life, uh, she decides to try another defense attorney to write uh, a petition for her. Uh, a, a guy named uh, Ochsner, and Oxner comes up with a much more logical tack. You know where he says, "Look, Ilsa, you know, if you are serious about being released, you need to show that you recognize um that that you did something wrong, you need to express contrition uh for a clemency petition to be approved. It's like it's in the very description of what a successful petition will require." And so he drafts up a petition which says he actually sort of uses sexist stereotypes in Ilza's favor in this case by saying, Oh, she was just a woman and she got so swept up in a men's world that we can't keep, um, we, we we can't keep her responsible for this. And she's very contrite and she would never do it again. All this kind of stuff. She ma- he mails it in at the same time he sends Ilza a copy and Ilza gets this thing and says, no i will never say this in a million years and actually sabotages her own clemency uh application by writing back to the minister of justice and saying my lawyer may have submitted that but tear it up i don't believe a word of it i am not contrite i do not accept those things i am you know i am a political prisoner here essentially and so yeah her lack of contrition i mean it it went right to the end and uh, and it and and at least from a strategic point of view it did not Serve her well because she was, she th- there was just no room for sympathy for her essentially, which is I think what the parole boards would have needed to see some sense of reflection, some sense of contrition, and she absolutely steadfastly refused to to express that.
0: There's another quote I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on page 285. Mm-hmm. You read as follows: Across Germany, newspapers presented Koch's suicide as the final act of the archetypal excess perpetrator, whose alleged sadism and depravity encapsulated Nazi barbarism in terms of both sensational and by then familiar. Koch was remembered variously as a perverse, power-obsessed, nymphomaniac demon, a sadistic monster, a tormentor and killer, and the architect of a reign of terror at Buchenwald, of a perverse and sadistic nature. The fact that Koch had died while serving a life sentence for the lesser crimes of common assault and inciting others to violence and murder still had not completely registered in a country where reckoning with the Nazi past remained painful and slow. Koch's zealous prosecution had long been touted as evidence that the West German state was not Coddling fascists, but was instead dealing forcefully with the vestiges of Nazism. Yet, as news reports on her suicide helped to illuminate, Koch also continued to provide an easy target of popular condemnation for a generation of Germans eager to distance themselves from the Nazi period and disinclined to acknowledge the broad complicity that brought the Third Reich to power. Can you expound on this well, sure. observation I think, for us?
1: I, I think what's so problematic about Koch's case is that it provides kind of this giant red herring in it, 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 for people trying to really understand what happened during the Holocaust. Because at the end of the day, I mean, as we know, I, a few sadistic people... Are not what made the holocaust happen the holocaust was a you know a massive bureaucratized uh um program that involved you know hundreds of thousands of regular people doing regular jobs in order to make the holocaust uh occur and so i think when We hold up somebody and say, look at the disgusting things this person did. This is the worst that Nazism gave us. I think it kind of distracts us from the much more um, commonplace, uh, but ultimately far more consequential uh, a participation of hundreds of thousands of ordinary Germans doing the little things that were required to make the Holocaust happen. So I think, and, and other people have made this observation with other uh, war crimes trials, Rebecca Whitman has written about uh, the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial, for instance, this focus on the excess perpetrators, the people who seem to go out of their way to commit grotesque crimes, and holding them up as the real, the real perpetrators, the real monsters of the regime. And I think, I think what that does, especially in Germany, is allow the regular German people who had supported the Nazis and had lived with this reign of terror to point at something and and condemn it very easily and say, but that wasn't us. We were good, decent people, uh, uh, and that is what Nazi depravity is all about. And so it sort of allowed her to become a bit of a scapegoat for a generation of people who wanted to distance themselves from the Nazi past that many had supported without having to reflect deeply on the role that they had played and how that had helped to sort of create the ultimate and horrific outcome that the Third Reich brought. What forms of
0: evidence were presented in the trials of Ilse Koch?
1: Um I mean, the evidence at, at her trials is 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 really the big problem and what uh, serves to explain the gulf between the monstrous image of Koch and the, you know, historical Koch that emerges out of the trial record because you know, Koch's trial, one of the problems with the American court that first uh, tried her for war crimes is that it was set up for expediency. And prosecutors there were able to use what they referred to as, quote, any evidence of probative value, rather, to the reasonable man, including hearsay, including uh, um, uh, statements of witnesses not presented in court. And so... Much of the evidence brought against Koch, and really all of the evidence brought against Koch to do with this uh, lampshade question and the question of the human skins, was at the end of the day, basically hearsay. You have a lot of prisoners in the camp. They're terrified for good reason. They occasionally see Ilza around the the camp. And there is kind of a, a, a rumor mill. Um, and people attribute crimes to her. There are these human skin objects that appear in the camp. Uh, a number of people who worked in the pathology department directly said Ilse Koch had nothing to do with that. These were these were collected by an, an SS doctor named Erich Wagner who was studying uh, tattooing as part of a wacky uh, PhD dissertation. Um, but ultimately, what tends to connect Ilse to those objects is, at the end of the day, hearsay. I didn't see it, but somebody told me that once they were in the pathology, somebody else said that those things were made for Frau Koch, or somebody said, Oh, I was dusting something in the Koch household while I was working there, and the and the and the parchment of the lampshade looked funny to me. And gradually this kind of mythical image emerges of her at Buchenwald that is Kind of passed around on the sort of prisoner broken telephone network, that 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 has her emerge as this kind of m- mythical monstrous character that few have encountered directly themselves, but all are terrified of because of the potent sort of rumors that they have heard and that spread so quickly in, in you know in camp life essentially. And what happens is that when those uh, when that evidence comes to court, it falls pa- apart very uh, quickly.
0: Can you tell us about Chief Prosecutor William Denson?
1: Yeah, well, Denson was the person who who, um, prosecuted her American trial at Dachau. By the time he got to the Buchenwald trial, he had already uh, prosecuted personnel for Mauthausen concentration camp from Dachau, from Flossenburg. And he had come up with this really novel uh, legal framework for trying large groups of perpetrators. Because the problem that the United States had was that they had thousands upon thousands of war criminals in their possession in Germany. And they knew that they had a very short period of time to uh, adjudicate those cases before the occupation would end. And they would presumably have to let the rest of them go or what have you. So they were interested in expediency. So Denson set up this program where he would try dozens of perpetrators at once from the same institution um so there were 61 at the mauthausen trial at the um at the buchenwald trial of which ilza Koch was a part there was uh 31 defendants and he came up with this uh unique sort of take on prosecuting concentration camp personnel Uh, with a charge called participating in a common design to commit war crimes. And in this sense, the concentration camp is the common design that commits war crimes. It is a system, uh, the end product of which is starvation, torture, and death. And so what he does is say... I'm not going to try all of the defendants on the dock and have to show that each one of them committed any kind of violence or murder. He says, not necessary. No way. What I'm going to do in court is show that Buchenwald itself was a criminal enterprise where people were murdered and killed and starved on a routine basis, that everybody in the dock and everybody who worked at the camp would have been aware of that. And that in doing their little part, whether they were the cook or whether they were the hangman, they were responsible for maintaining that criminal enterprise and are therefore responsible for the murder and the war crimes, et cetera, that occurred there. And it was very successful. And so you generally have 100% uh, uh, rates of conviction at these trials and mass executions that, that follow so Denson uh, led the charge there, and prosecuted those trials. And and uh, at least from a statistical perspective, uh, he did very very well. He sent more than a hundred people to the gallows, and uh, I think he only lost three cases. Three he only had three acquittals out of the two hundred some odd uh, defendants who he tried while he was there.
0: What role did the U.S. Senate play in trying Ilse Koch?
1: Well, what happened was that following that Dachau trial that uh, Ilza Koch was part of and that William Denson had prosecuted, she was sentenced to life in prison, not to the gallows, uh, for the reason that she had managed to become pregnant in American custody under murky circumstances. And so she spared the gallows. And in the interim, what happens is that there is a review of... The Buchenwald trial as prosecuted by William Denson by real American army jurists. Because at the Dachau court, the Ilsa none of the judges, save for one, needed to have uh, uh, legal training. They're just soldiers uh standing in judgment of 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 these uh perpetrators. But following the announcements of the verdicts, all the verdicts are reviewed by real military uh, lawyers and judges in the office of the uh, deputy judge advocate for war crimes and then the the judge advocate himself, the the highest uh, legal position of an American in Germany at that point in time. And these lawyers pour over this stuff and say, there's nothing here on which to hold this woman. Like this evidence is there's nothing here. <laughs> they really say, like, I don't see what you, you can read all their notes back and forth, and the notes that they make on the record. And they say, this is just hearsay. There is no solid evidence. And and they, they, they come to the conclusion, uh, the judge advocate, I forget which one it is, he says something like, I, I literally don't see on what we can hold this woman. Um, but in the end, they agree to just a dramatic reduction of her sentence from life in prison to four years because of this this paucity of, of reliable evidence tying her to the alleged crimes that she was said to have committed. What happens is that when news breaks of that dramatic reduction in the United States, where people had followed her case and her trial constantly in the newspapers and read all the sensational stuff about lampshades and sexualized murder and all this kind of stuff, they were aghast at this reduction of sentence to four years. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand that you know the nature of the evidence that had been presented against her and there's in fact such a big groundswell of protest in the united states that it spurns the u.s senate to launch an investigation into the commutation of her trial and they essentially relitigate her trial in a sense though they have no power to to overturn her sentence but they hold hearings they get the witnesses back they get the lawyers back in the u.s senate and they they hold hearings to try and figure out what happened. And if there's a way to reverse uh, the commutation of her life sentence to four years, the sense is that, no, you can't do that. Um, and they ultimately come around to a bit of a sneaky or a, a workaround, which is that uh, they, they come to the conclusion that if Ilse Koch was handed over to the West Germans— On the day of her release following the completion of her four-year American uh, uh, incarceration, that the West Germans with American assistance could now put her on trial because for various technical reasons, crimes committed against German citizens had been outside the purview of the Dachau courts. So technically, the Germans now could try Ilse for crimes that were committed against German citizens and not commit double jeopardy, this principle that that prevents people being able to try be tried twice for the same crime because they say, well, it's not the same crime. You weren't tried for it crimes against Germans before. This time we can try you for crimes against Germans. And so with the assistance of the U.S. Senate um, and the reports that they uh, create, the package is basically now passed on to the West Germans who indeed do arrest her the day she comes out of American custody and begin the process all over again and ultimately uh, send her to jail for the rest of her life.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time is? And attention have gone since completing this book
1: (laughs) to be honest I've been working on this book for it was a good 10 years of solid work between the research and the writing and I think I'm actually in this if I dare say rather enjoyable phase at the moment of having just put the book out there um, seeing what kind of feedback I'm getting from the book and trying to actually think with a very open mind uh, about what I might do next, I've sort of intentionally not jumped into another project because I think having written two books in a row now on war crimes trials, I'm sort of interested in interested in doing something quite dramatically different. And the problem is I don't quite know what that is yet. And, uh, and my sense is that with a little bit of mental space uh, over the coming months and just uh, reading wherever my interest takes me, I might... Uh, might, might, might come to something that will surprise me. So that's sort of where I'm at.
0: It's a very healthy state to be in.
1: <laughs> it feels good. <laughs>
0: um, I wanted to end by thanking you wholeheartedly for all the knowledge you shared with us and for all the sacrifice and silent suffering involved in going through your research, writing, editing, and preparation process. For the purpose of bringing this masterpiece to fruition for the benefit of readers, students, and interested individuals, wherever they may be.
1: Well, great! Thank you so much. I, I uh, it's nice to know that uh, some people read it. You know that that's the, that's the uh, that's the my ultimate end goal is just that as many people read it as possible because it uh, was a lot of work and, and, and being able to talk to somebody who has read it and has good questions is great. So I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thank you for all the effort, sacrifice and silent suffering that you've undertaken for wisdom's sake.
1: Well, that's a very noble way to put it. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you very much. As we end today's dialogue,
0: I'm Ari Barbalat, your host on the new books in Jewish studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Thomas Yardim. He is Associate Professor of History at Toronto Metropolitan University. We have been discussing his newly published book, Ilse Koch on Trial, Making the Bitch of Buchenwald, published in Cambridge, Massachusetts by Harvard University Press, 2023.
1: Thank you. Thank you.